Uh, Father, we pray that you'll uh, meet us in this hour. Thank you for the blessing of being together. And we pray that you will um, open your word to us, help us to think wisely and carefully about how we might honor you when confrontation is needed. Uh, Probably most of us would say this is an area where we need to grow in. So will you give us grace as we seek to develop these skills uh, to be like Christ who was uh, gentle and lowly of heart and yet uh, when necessary confronted in love and Christian grace. And so we, we look to him and we ask your blessing on our time in Jesus name. Amen. Um, this is track two. So I feel like all my stories you guys know already. Um, we don't do comp- conflict very well. We don't do confrontation very well. Uh, Proverbs says, well, um, well, you you know the passage, Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And that probably challenges us right out of the gate because we'd think, well, if we're a true friend, friend, we're not wounding. So again, we have to have a category for a God honoring wounding of other people at times. Okay? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Now, not not the way I read about in the paper years ago about the guy that bought the air raid siren and mounted it to his house and whenever his wife got out of line, he'd crank up the air raid siren and it would quiet her down and then okay, you remember that story. That's not how we want to do confrontation. Um, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Listen to verse 5 of Proverbs 27. Better is open rebuke than love concealed. I'll tell you right now, by nature, I am not a confronter. I like to run from confrontation, if I'm being honest with you. And that challenges me, because if I'm going to be a friend that is God's kind of friend, if you're going to be a godly friend, we have to learn how to confront in a godly Christian way, and we need to be okay with the possibility that we might wound other people in the process, but that those wounds are sanctifying. Those wounds are things that God uses. You know, I think in our, in our psychotherapeutic culture, I think we think about wounding as like, oh, that's always a bad thing. We've got to fix it. Well, here's a wound that in and of itself is healing. It's a healing wound. It's not something to fix. It's something that actually brings sanctification and help. So again, it's like, boom, right? (laughs) That that challenges us. But we have to have these categories because that's what uh, Scripture teaches. So so here's the premise. A mark of true biblical friendship... uh, means that we may need to confront or rebuke others at times. And it risks wounding, but that is part of the deal. So I want to talk with you about four principles for godly, delicate Christian confrontation uh, so that we might grow to be better at this sort of thing. Now, before we get there, we got a zero principle. Before we get to the four principles of how we confront, we need to start with a zero principle. What's that? Do we even need to confront? Are we prepared to confront? So so in my experience, there's kind of two types of people. Most people don't like confrontation. They don't like to be confronted. 
They don't like to do confrontation. They'd rather go to the dentist and have a root canal than have to confront somebody. That's like normal people. And then there's a very small percentage of people that think confrontation is their spiritual discipline, their spiritual gift. (laughs) And uh, that's just what they do, right? I'm just doing, I'm just telling it like it is. That's what God says, speak the truth. They forget about the in love part sometimes, but right. And they just feel like, you know, this is my thing. So if, if you're in the, probably the broader category of, I don't like confrontation. This is going to be, Hey, let's learn the skills. Let's ask for grace and wisdom. Let's learn how to do this. If you're in that smaller percentage of, you know, this is my spiritual gift and this is my, my role in the church or then, then maybe this will help to shape and direct, or maybe it affirms what you're doing. So, but in either way, I think, I think we get some help here. But the first thing is, do we even need to confront? Are we ready to confront? So let's think about this. Number one, have we communicated with the person? Have we communicated with the person? Uh, Proverbs 18, two, you don't need to turn there. Just listen. The fool does not delight in understanding, but only in what? Revealing his own mind. Okay. Well, sometimes confrontation is just us revealing our own mind and we're acting like a fool because we, we, we haven't understood, right? We, we haven't tried to communicate with the other person. So before you're like, I'm going to go confront that person, make just, have I communicated with them? Have I talked to them? Have I made an effort there? And along the way, as you communicate, make sure you clarify the facts of the situation. Proverbs 18, 13, this is advanced track. You know the verse, right? Don't be a fool by giving an answer before he hears. Um, we remember Proverbs 25 helps us how to do that. The plan in the heart of man is like deep water. A man of understanding draws it out. Okay. So have we communicated? Have we clarified? And in the process, we want to confirm the presence of unrepentant sin. We'll look at Luke 17 and Matthew 18 in a moment, but those two passages indicate that the need for confrontation is the presence of unrepentant sin. Um, we, we, we don't confront because someone likes a different sports team than you do. We don't confront because we have a different preference. We don't confront because someone holds a different opinion on any sort of thing. We don't confront because someone does something you find annoying. And I'll just, I'll put my hand up. I got three teenagers at home right now. And uh, it is like sanctification you know, advanced track for dad. Uh, because my kids do things, they don't intend to do them. They're kids, they're teenagers. And some of you had teenagers, some of you are teenagers, you know. It's like, I mean, I, I know, I just, you, you're, hear, hear me out on this, okay? I know it's not intentional. But um, it's like, and I want to go and be like, you know, stop it, do that. And it's like, wait a minute. Is this something that God says is morally wrong? No. Is this something that dad finds particularly annoying? Yes. But that's not a confrontation, is it? That's a, I need to love, tolerate, and be patient. Maybe pray that they go to the other room. Um, You know, but right? But that's not a confrontation issue. And and I find that, maybe maybe this is true for you. When, When I don't like to confront, that's my kind of my nature. But when I feel particularly motivated to confront, it's usually for the wrong reason. Right? It's because I'm annoyed or I'm, I'm impatient or I don't like what they're doing. or Anyway, so, so again, I'm, I'm just telling you how it is for me. But we need to confirm the presence of unrepentant sin that we don't confront over those other issues. Preference issues, annoyances, opinions, differences, questionable items, gray areas. Um, 
And there are dozens of ways that we're going to feel like confronting when that's not really the need. Number four, consider if you are the best person to confront. Consider if you're the best. So let's, so let's say all these things are true. You've communicated, you've clarified, you've confirmed the presence of unrepentant sin. Okay, I'm going to go get it. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Do you think you're the best person to do that? Uh, again, go back to Proverbs 27. Faithful are the wounds of a casual acquaintance. No, faithful are the wounds of a friend. So the best person to do confrontation is a close friend. And it may be that I mean, this is your neighbor. This is some visitor at church. This is someone that you don't really know, a friend of a friend. And, and that's, it's probably not your role to go do that then. Um, now, we want to make sure that it does happen because, you know, Jesus says, you know, if your brother sins, rebuke him. So it, that, that confrontation is needed. But the question is, are there other people that are better qualified to do it than you? And if so, well, maybe we need to huddle up and, and uh, figure out who the best person is to do that. It takes wisdom and, uh, and, and care there in how we do that. Now, a footnote to this. Uh, I remember teaching this years and years ago in our church. And uh, I had someone come up to me after the message and they're like, Pastor Keith, I hear what you're saying. I, I think I agree about it. But if we do this, we're going to be confronting like all the time, all the time. And I thought, well, if, if we're making this the criteria and we're only confronting for clear, unrepentant sin, my guess is we're not doing this near as often as we might think we need to. But think about the wisdom in God in terms of why we do. Why would we confront each other? Why would God put that in the Bible? What do you think? Yeah, to make us more like him and glorify him in the process. Iron sharpens iron, yeah. Are you, you guys understand, and, and this is true for me, I am unaware of my most obvious needs. I'm oblivious. And I have a loving wife and loving children and loving Christian friends that help me. Like, oh, hey, maybe you need to think about that. Oh, yeah, I didn't realize that. Thank you. So if we don't do this, the whole body doesn't grow in sanctification. So maybe if we're not used to doing this, there will be a season where, where we're doing you know, some confrontation. But the goal is this becomes less necessary. Because Christians, you know, a healthy Christian is self-repenting, right? We, the, over time, we go, oh, yeah, I need to repent. Oh, yeah, I need to repent. And, and we don't need somebody coming to say, hey, you need to repent because we're, we've developed the maturity and the conscientiousness to say, okay, I'm going to be a self-repenting Christian. So, um, so, so let me put your mind at ease. I don't think this means we're confronting all the time. But even when we do have to confront, it, it leads us to get to a better place where con- confrontation is not as necessary. Okay, so let's, this is the zero principle, evaluate the need, and let's not confront unless we've confirmed all these things. So here's the first principle, deal with your own heart first, deal with your own heart first. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, and uh, let's look at verses 3 to 5. As you're turning there, you know this is the Sermon on the Mount, now, Jesus is, this is most longest recorded sermon in the New Testament. And uh, in context, he's talking about hypocrisy and self-righteousness. A lot of the Sermon on the Mount is designed to help his hearers understand that a walk with God is really about a humble trust and obedience to God from the heart. It's not about all this external religion as the Pharisees has, had popularized, right? It's not this external, self-righteous, lots of rules. It's about a humble, trusting walk with God of obedience from the heart. So what Jesus is doing here is he's trying to correct some of that. 
And uh, this is where he says, you know, judge not lest you be judged. And, and of course, you know, people take that out of context. You know, you try to confront, judge not lest you be judged. You know, like, it, it, that's not it. What Jesus is condemning here is not making evaluations or judgments. He's condemning hypocritical judgment. A judgment that would say, I'm going to say this to my friend, but I'm going to live a different way. Or I'm criticizing this person for a standard that isn't a biblical standard. So that's, that's really what Jesus is not saying you should never judge for any reason. In fact, the rest of the Bible is going to tell us you do have to judge sometimes. But he's condemning here a certain type of sinful judging, really that of judging uh, hypocritically. And that's what verses, verse 2 is really about there, right? So look at, look at verse 3. Uh, why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is familiar territory, right? Here's the principle. Before you confront, deal with your own heart first. Deal with your own logs first. Uh, let's just unpack a couple, rather than the whole thing, I'll give you a couple of principles to think about here. First, we need to recognize the deceits and distortions created by indwelling sin. Recognize the deceits and distortions created by indwelling sin. That's the language here. Why does Jesus say log and speck? Why do you not notice the log? Picture the 20-foot 2x8 that you buy at Home Depot. Actually, you can't get it at Home Depot. It's special order because it's so big. Um, right? Coming out of this guy's eye and the speck in your brother's eye. Why that, that extreme language? What's Jesus getting at? Yeah, he, he's saying we don't see our most obvious sins. It's obvious, you know, if Mr. Log walked in the room here with a 20-foot, you know, 2 by 10 coming out of his eye, it would be the most obvious thing about him, right? You know, he'd about clothesline our friends here by the door, and he'd come up here and almost knock me out, and he'd put a hole in the, right? And, and Mr. Log, if he was here, that would be the most obvious thing about him. And it is to everybody else except him. He doesn't see it. So Jesus uses this hyperbolic language, we would call that in a literature class, this extreme language, because what Jesus is saying is our own sins deceive us. And indwelling sin distorts reality so that I am prone to minimize my own sin when in reality it's much bigger, right? And I'm prone to maximizing the sin of other people, seeing it bigger than it is when in reality it's actually smaller. Um, you ever been to the carnival, Texas State Fair? And I don't know if they still do fun houses. Remember the fun house? You, you go and they've got one of those wavy mirrors and you go up there and, and, oh, there's Pastor Keith. He's nine feet tall. You know, and then I look at the other one and I'm three feet tall, you know, and that's what sin is. Sin is a carnival mirror. It magnifies the sins of others and it minimizes our own sin. And Jesus says, that's why you need to deal with your own heart first because you're not seeing clearly. Um, think of indwelling sin in your heart like a pair of glasses. You ever go to the eye doctor? And uh, I see lots of glasses in the room. I wear, I wear contacts. Uh, I'm blind as a bat. I take my contacts out. My wife can move my toothbrush. I can't find it. <laughs> She'll mess with me like that every now and then just because she loves me. Um, right? And you go to the eye doctor and, and uh, you, know, you take your glasses off or your contact lenses off and you know, you're like, right? And then doc comes up and puts the thing in front of you and dials in your prescription. And it's like, oh... Um, you move it out of the way. It's like, uh, doc, 
Doc, where are you? Oh, I'm over here, right? I remember um, uh, a couple years ago, uh, there's a group of, um, uh, it's a military-type club, cadets down in Granbury that I work with, and uh, we had the uh, the local DWI officer from Granbury Police Department come and kind of give our cadets education on, um, like, drunk driving and whatnot, and, uh, you know, the the risks of that, and, 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 and he had this pair of glasses, and maybe you've seen it. Uh, they've designed this, these goggles. Right? It looks like a pair of like weed-whacking goggles. And you put them on, and it mimics being drunk. And uh, so you know, we, we, put, we put like a line down the middle of the classroom. And that, you know, okay, cadets, right down the line. Okay, walk down the line. Right? Okay, now put the glasses on. You know, this, this, raises, this is, simulates your blood alcohol level going to whatever. And, you try, and they're, they're like, you know, they're, it, it, it's hilarious. But, but it, it makes the point, right? And, uh, and what Jesus is saying is that that's what indwelling sin does to you. You can't see straight. You're not looking at your own sin right. You're not looking at your friend's sin right. It, it's like a carnival mirror. And uh, so recognize that, right? When I have sin in my heart, I'm not a reliable source of reality, especially as it relates to seeing my own sin and my friend's sin. So... In light of that, I need to repent of my own sin first, right? First, remove the log from your own eye and notice the next word. And then you will see clearly. That's when, that's when the doc puts that thing up. You know, you've been, you've been struggling. Your prescription's changed a little bit. You finally get into the eye doctor and uh, he dials in the new prescription, A or B, A or B, right? Remember that? And how many of you think your doctor's actually messing with you? They're like, there's no difference between the two and I've... I've accused my, my optometrist of that occasionally. Anyway, but, but remember, he, he dials it in, you put it in, and you're like, whoa, I can see the 2020, I can see the 2015 line. You know? And that's what Jesus is saying repentance is like. When you deal with your own heart first and you repent, it's like putting on this pair of spiritual glasses. Well, now you're going to see reality much more as it is. Okay, so let me ask you a question. Let's say, how many of you have ever had a conflict with your spouse? Those of you that are married. Those of you that are not married, how many you have a conflict with your parents? Parents? Conflict with parents? Okay, get those hands up, I know. Uh, uh, friend? Okay. And how many of you have ever, you know, you've had that, and you're, you're so convinced you're right, and you're just laying out your case and all that, and then at some point God humbles you and goes, this is not the way to do it. And you kind of calm down and kind of get your heart under control, practice some repentance, practice some forgiveness, and now you're back talking to mom and dad, right, talking to your spouse about that thing that was so important to you 15 minutes ago. How many of you have had this, this moment? I can't believe I got so wound up over that. You've been there? Okay. Why? Because you're seeing more clearly. See, when you had sin in your heart, you weren't seeing it clearly. And what looked like an issue this big is now an issue that's this big. This is like a hill to die on. You're like, no, this is a molehill. And that's what Jesus is saying, right? So, so let's deal with it first. And then that way, um, uh, that way we're better equipped then to confront. You imagine... You imagine if, if uh, so I got one of those cadets, he's got the glasses on, the, the I'm drunk glasses, and we said, okay, why don't you just take my keys and take my car out for a spin? Well, that's what it's like when we try to do confrontation without dealing with our sin first, okay? So let's do that. Now, we're going to do that uh, in, in humility, right? We're going to do that. And, and there's wonderful byproducts of this. When you deal with your own sin first, not only does Jesus say it brings clarity, but it also brings humility, if I'm dealing with my own sin, I'm a fellow sinner going to another sinner. We both need Jesus. That's going to create a tone in my confrontation 
that is conducive to godliness. Now, I'm going to say this and you tell me if I'm wrong. I think if we just do that, we're handling 90% of what we need to do in confrontation. I really think it is. Everything else is, is procedural, really. If your heart's right, that's the most important thing. Number two, let biblical goals drive your effort. We're talking about how do we learn the delicate art of Christian confrontation. We want to make sure, is this a confrontation issue? We've evaluated it. We think, okay, it is. Okay, so I'm going to deal with my own sin first. That's number one. Number two, let biblical goals direct your effort. Uh, Now, be honest. When we do confrontation poorly, what are our goals might be? Uh, what, What might our goals be in that scenario when we do it poorly? Selfish. What's our favorite reason for confronting? What's our favorite reason for confronting? Yeah. So. Yeah, our own way. Yeah, selfish. I just don't like what you're doing. I don't like what you're doing, and I want you to stop, or I want you to do it my way, or I want you to see it my way. Right? That's what we do. So, if if we're if we're doing number one, hopefully number two follows. That I go, okay, I'm I'm coming humbly. I'm coming humbly, I'm coming, coming in grace. Let's talk about some, some biblical goals. Uh, turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. And we'll just kind of anchor our, our thoughts around this clear passage. Galatians chapter 6. Those of you that have read uh, Jay Adams' Ready to Restore, uh, he talks a lot about Galatians from, uh, from this actual passage. So as you're turning there, remember the Galatians have abandoned the gospel, right? Remember all the other letters. Paul says, oh, you're doing this great Romans. You're doing this great Corinthians. You're doing this great Philippians. With Galatians, he's like, "Uh, let me get right to the point. You're following a wrong gospel and you need to stop it, okay? So Galatians is very serious. The tone's very different. These folks have have very quickly, Paul said, uh, left the true gospel for a counterfeit. And, uh, And that's a big deal because as he calls them to repent and turn back to the true gospel, there will need to be restoration that happens. So if you think about it, Galatians is really an epistle of, com- of confrontation in that way. So we, we learn how to do it well, I think, in part by looking at it in particular. So our goal in confrontation is not venting our anger, fixing the person, being annoyed to action, selfish. Our goal, chapter 6, verse 1, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. There's our goal, restoration. That's number one. Okay, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Okay, so, so think about the language there. He, he says, brethren, not super Christians, Brethren, I'm coming alongside another brother or another sister, right? You who are spiritual, you say, what does that mean? What, what do you think? What does it mean, you who are spiritual? Walking in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit. And I, I, I love that you said that because you've read the book before, obviously, right? What's the previous chapter about? Chapter 5? The fruit of the Spirit. You who are spiritual, what does that mean? Well, just back up to the previous chapter. You who are exemplifying, verse 22, love... Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, you go restore. What is he saying? Um, The ministry of restoration is 
contingent upon a person exemplifying spiritual fruit. Or you want it simpler? Spiritual fruit is the prerequisite of confrontation. Okay, so I want to be walking by means of the Spirit. And, and, and think about this. Would your confrontation probably go better if you were doing things like this? Um, idolatry, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying? Or would it be better if you went like this? Love, joy, peace, patience, kind of... You see? It's, it's a picture of confrontation done poorly, confrontation done well. Okay, So you who are spiritual, you're exemplifying spiritual fruit, you're walking by means of the Spirit, restore such a one. There's our word. The word means to put in order or to put back into function or to restore to a former condition. And, um, and, and, and Paul's not explicit about exactly what he's talking about because I think in a confrontation, the goal of restoration is multifaceted, right? It's, it's to be restored to God, to one another, to um, you know, a ministry that you're involved in or a task that is broken down. Restoration is, is comprehensive, I think, by its nature. And so you're, you're restoring them to those things. And, and notice what he says. You do that in a spirit of what? Spirit of gentleness. Okay, so um, a gentle answer turns away wrath, right? Um, if you were to eavesdrop on me doing confrontation, the word you should walk away with is gentleness if I'm doing it right. If I see you doing confrontation, the word that I should walk away with to characterize what I'm seeing, if you're doing it right, is gentleness. Okay? And notice the, the, um, the caution. Be careful lest, what does he say? You too be tempted. Now, what might we be tempted to do in confrontation? What do you, be, be tempted about what? I mean, it could be you're, you're trying to restore some, someone out of sin, so it could be you, know, you might be tempted to do the same sin, but more likely it is. It's pride and arrogance that, that I'm, I'm spiritual. I'm going to restore such a one. And, and so the temptation of, of confrontation might be that I would be tempted to have a spirit of pride or arrogance or, or um, uh, self-righteousness in that. So I need to be careful lest I too be tempted in that. And I, and I love this. Look at, look at verse 2. Bear one another's burdens. So confrontation is not saying, you got this problem, I'm here to tell you about it, hope it goes well. It's saying, how can I bear some of that burden with you? Uh, I want to do the, the work. Not, not the work of repentance. I mean, that, that they have to do that alone, but you know how it is. There's all sorts of collateral damage around things like this that happens. And the church comes alongside and says, even though you brought this upon yourself, how can I help you bear some of that burden? Um, so we're, we're fulfilling the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens in that scenario. So restoration, that, that's goal number one. Goal number two is repentance, right? Repentance is the goal. Um, and to see this, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. And we're going to park it here just for a little bit because this passage teaches us not just the goal of confrontation, but the manner or how we do confrontation. 
So uh, repentance, right? That's, that's our second goal. And so what, what we're going to do, knowing that that's the goal now, let me flip to the third principle here because this is going to teach us how we do it, okay? So repentance is the goal uh, to win the brother over, but it's also we're going to see the process here. So let's look at the text, Matthew chapter 18. Will you notice with me, first of all, before I read Matthew 18, uh, verses 15 to 17, that the first part of Matthew 18 is about what? Just look at your Bible there and tell me, what, what is the first part of Matthew 18 about? Yeah, who's the greatest? So arrogance and humility. Go all the way back to the beginning of the chapter. Who's the greatest, right? And then what does it say? Be careful not to do what? Cause a little one to stumble. And if you do that, it would be better that you're drowned with a millstone on your neck, right? In, in, in the sea. Um, he talks about stumbling blocks in verses 7 and 8. 10 says, be sure that you're not despising little ones. We think of little ones like children, and, and of course, I mean, it could mean that. But by context, it's really just people that are less mature than you. And oftentimes, we're going to confront somebody because they haven't, they haven't grown in their faith, maybe as much in that one area. So Jesus is saying... First of all, let's not get a big head. Let's make sure we're humble. We're not thinking, oh, I'm the greatest because I confront. Or, and then let's be careful we're not causing any stumbling blocks to people in confrontation. Let's be careful that we are um, uh, not, not um, hurting them in any way, that, that we're not despising them, you know, looking down on them. And then what's the next part of it about? The lost sheep. What's the, when you hear church discipline, what comes to mind? What's that? Corinthians. Corinthians there's an example of that, right, in chapter 5, for sure. Um, church discipline is not like you did the crime, now you do the time. Church discipline is like, you know, we got our families at the, the local community pool, the YMCA, whatever, whatever you guys have here, and we look down... And a five-year-old has just gone under the water, sputtering and yelling, and now he's under the water. And what do we do? We all drop what we do, and we jump in to try to save him. That, that's, it's a rescue operation. That's why ch the church discipline process is preceded by, let's say you have 100 sheep, and one of them wanders off. What are you going to do? Oh, I've got 99 perfectly good sheep here. Uh, what's, what's the loss of one sheep? Kind of a problem sheep anyway. What does the great shepherd do? He leaves the 99 and he pursues the one that wanders off. Then Jesus says, so if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private, right? And if he listens to you, you've won your brother over, right? So that, that's, that's the background of church discipline. In our church, we call this uh, corrective discipleship, corrective discipleship. Uh, we, I mean, we might say church discipline, but corrective discipleship is more in line with the purpose Formative discipleship is Awana and Sunday school and listening to sermons and small groups and accountabilities and, and, and counseling. That's formative discipleship because those are proactive things we're doing to try to help people grow in their walk with God. Corrective discipleship is someone just is drowning in the pool of sin and we need to go rescue them. And that's what church discipline really is. So look with me at verses 15 and following. If your brother sins, go and show him his fall in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he does not listen to you, too bad you tried. 
No, that's not what it says. Uh, Take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. For truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Okay, so what does confrontation look like? What is church discipline or my term corrective discipleship? That's what we call it in our church. It starts with a private confrontation. Private confrontation, right? If your brother sins, notice it's got to be a clear sin. It's unrepentant sin, right? If, if he's repented, there's no conversation necessary. So it's an unrepentant sin. You know about it. Go and show him his fault in private. It's a private confrontation just between the two of you. If he listens to you, not like he listens to you, but listens to you in the sense of he repents, he takes it to heart, he responds, then the process ends. You won your brother, praise the Lord, and you go on with life, and nobody else knows about it. And uh, can I just, as a footnote to this, this should probably be happening regularly in our families, in our church community, in our you know, outside Christian friends. This is normal spiritual health. And the reason that maybe we don't hear about it as much is we're not supposed to hear about it. Because it's happening privately. So um, that, that's, that's good. And I think a lot of times things get too far um, out of control because we are hesitant sometimes to do what God is asking us to do here. But this is, this is where it starts. And hopefully it, it's the regular act of healthy, Christi- healthy Christians. So what if he doesn't listen? If he doesn't listen, we go to verse 16. It says, uh, if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you. And then he's going to quote from the Old Testament uh, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So if he doesn't listen to private confrontation, now we have plural verification, plural verification. You say, what's that mean? It means you bring someone else, that's plural, right? We have more than one in order to verify the validity of what's going on. You know, I, I may go to, hey man, you know, you really about... You know, set, you were, spoke very unkindly to your wife. You were angry. I wasn't angry. I wasn't kind to her, unkind to her, you know. And at that point, it's like a difference of opinion. So now you bring someone else along the way the Old Testament law taught to verify the validity of the charge. And, and you know, here, here's, here's Bob and Larry, right? Not, not Veggie Tales. Um, just came out. Um, and, uh, and you know what, Joe? Um, actually, Bob and Larry and I both agree that you were very angry. In fact, I mean, if we're being honest with you, we see your anger towards your wife pretty regularly. And we love you, and we know you want to honor Christ, but that, that's not honoring to him, and we think you need to repent of that. So that extra person or persons is verifying the validity of the need for repentance. Um, and as, as a, another thought here, too, this is often a good time to get an elder involved so if you're needing to bring someone else along in confrontation having an elder involved in this process is helpful because if you have to go to the third step now you've already got somebody in leadership doing this okay remind me when do we quit is it is it 3 30 or is it 3 45 
345, right? Okay. All right. Okay. Um, yes. Um, now, what type of person do you want to bring in to plural verification? Well, Jesus, what Jesus says helps us here. It needs to be somebody who knows about what's going on and can vouch for the validity of the charge, right? It needs to be somebody who can be a testimony. Um, this is the witnesses that are necessary here, able to verify the facts, and, and preferably somebody who has a relationship with this other person, okay? So private confrontation, that's step one. Plural verification, that's step two. Plenary activation. Plenary activation. That is um, step three. Um, now, this is not a gossip, a gossip thing. This is not slander. This is, we're all at the community pool, Johnny goes under the pool, and we all don't stand aside and kind of stare at each other. You know, the sheep wanders off, we can hear the wolves howling in the woods, and we don't all yawn and go the other way. We all jump in the pool, right? We all go running after the sheep. That's what, that's what telling it to the church means. This is plenary activation. Everybody gets involved. Uh, because it is a rescue operation. And, you know, how many of you have seen this done in a church before? Okay. Um, if you've never seen it, I'll tell you, the first time I heard this, I'm like, really? Like, you're going to get up and tell the whole church this ugly thing that this person did? And so I was, I was suspicious the first time I, I heard this. Then I saw it done. The, the first time I saw this done, uh, I was at Grace Community, Grace Community Church in L.A., John MacArthur's church. It was a Sunday evening service, so not the main service when there's you know thousand people there. You know, a couple hundred people, just more focused on the church membership. And um, one of the elders got up, and in a very objective and summary fashion, not all the details, but just, just enough information to know what's going on, and a very tender pastoral plea shared with the church what had happened and who it was, and then and then coached us, shepherded us through. What do you do? Pray for this person. If you know them, um, go talk to them. You know, plead with them to repent and point them to the scriptures. Tell them you care about their soul. And and I was like, whoa, that's pretty cool. I mean, to to love people like that. I mean, to to to, to want to get that involved that you would care for somebody to to do that. And I thought, man, that's. So the, if you've never seen this done, I'm not surprised if you're like, well, that's kind of, you know, because it is. And when you see it done well, you'll understand this isn't a you know whole church gossip session or anything like that. It's we're all jumping in the pool to try to rescue this poor person. Okay. And then the fourth step is what we might call probable conclusion. Probable conclusion. Verse 17, the second part says, uh, if he refuses to listen to the church then treat him as a Gentile or a tax collector. You say, what? A Gentile or a tax collector? What Jesus is saying is, at the point that a person is refusing to repent of actual sin after the whole church has provided confrontation, you reach a conclusion. And the conclusion is, this is probably not a Christian. Because step one, two, and three, you're appealing to this person as a fellow believer. Right? If your brother sins, go and showing him his fault. Right? So we're assuming this is a Christian. By the time you get to step four, you go, probably not a Christian. Because a Christian is somebody who's going to repent when they're confronted. Uh, now, is everybody that's church disciplined at this point, step four, not a Christian? No, they could be really, really stubborn Christians living in sin and 
and it takes a season of, of humility and whatnot to, to maybe come out of that. So that's possible. But what Jesus is saying is you treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector, meaning your strategy changes. Step one, two, and three is I'm appealing to a fellow believer. Step four is I'm evangelizing somebody who probably needs Christ. That's the difference. And as a very practical matter, often what happens at step four is their church membership is removed. You say, well, that doesn't sound very nice. Well, it, it's, it's not punitive. It's not like, oh, you know, we're, we're punishing you. It's, it's a recognition of the reality that this is probably not a Christian. And if they're not a Christian, obviously they can't be a church member because that, that, the commitment of, of the body of Christ requires regeneration. I mean, we, that's hopefully is obvious. So that's what this fourth step is about, right? We're making the probable conclusion that they're not a Christian. We might remove them from membership. Um, and our, the main thing is our strategy changes to one of evangelism rather than appealing to what we assumed was a Christian. Uh, now, uh, we mentioned 1 Corinthians 5, uh, earlier, because in First Corinthians chapter five, we won't turn there right now, but there's an actual example of this process uh, played out, and Paul coaches the Corinthian church through these steps, and uh, he gives another reason in First Corinthians five as to why we would do this. Do, do you remember his reason? He says, "A little leaven does what? Leavens the whole loaf." So another reason we remove them from membership and we make this declaration is, if you've got a professing believer in your congregation living in open sin, and you've got very um, immature Christians or Christians that might look up to that person, or they, maybe they've you know, have been in a Bible study, that we don't want that influence in the body of Christ because it's going to spread. So that's another reason that we learn from 1 Corinthians there. Okay, so private confrontation, plural verification, plenary activation, probable conclusion, those are the steps of church discipline or corrective discipleship or whatever you want to call it. Okay. Now questions on that. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. 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 Gotcha. Yes, I appreciate that. Yeah. So, what what you're describing, I think, is the way some folks have interpreted this, and and essentially they, they've taken step two, and they've they've expanded it a bit. That that initially, I mean, based on what Jesus said. It doesn't say elder, although it might be wise to get a pastor elder involved. Uh, but you're right. It needs to be somebody who would know the person and would know the situation. So it's probably a friend of some sort. Absolutely. Um, it doesn't say it can't be an elder or a pastor. So I think that's, that's wise, as long as the elder pastor you know, becomes aware of it in some way. Um, but I think when Jesus says, tell it to the church, I mean, uh, that's pretty clear. So... And I, and I know you're, you're agreeing with that. At some point, we are telling it to the church, but maybe maybe the pastors get involved as you know step two B, and we let that let the pastors go to them first, and then right. So I think that can be a, a wise extension of of number two there for sure. I think I think that there's wisdom in that, uh, and this is where you know my church may 
apply the steps a little bit different than another church based on wisdom. So, but no, I'd, I'd be totally fine with that. That, that makes sense to me. Um, but uh, but the steps as I've outlined them, you know, there's clearly four. Uh, we can expand this as needed there. The other thing too, Jesus doesn't give a time frame. So it doesn't say like, you know, you do step one on Monday and then step two on Tuesday and step three. You know, I, I think wisdom in all of this and, and this whole thing on gentleness and, and fruit of the spirits, patience, this may take several months. In fact, when, when we've had occasion to do this in our church, it's been over several months because you're wanting to give the person time to really repent and, and let all of these things sink in. So, okay. Our last principle is meditate on God's example throughout your effort. Meditate on God's example throughout your effort. You say, what, what's, what's God's example? What happens in Genesis 3? Sin comes into the world, death, suffering, illness, all these things. And what happens, what happens to Adam and Eve at that point? They don't die, not immediately. Uh, what does God do? He goes and he confronts them, doesn't he? And he says, what did you do? And what did you do? And, and then there's that wonderful picture of redemption where he takes the animal and slays it and clothes them and says, one day the seed is going to come from the woman and crush the head of Satan, right? And as we continue to read in Genesis, uh, we see the world just go down into destruction uh, we see Abram and Sarah, these, these patriarchs. God comes to them, makes the covenant with them. And Lord, are you sure? You know, we're going to have a baby where we're old. And, and, uh, and God assures them, no, you are going to have a baby. It's going to come from your body and, and I'm going to keep my covenant. And, and um, you know, Abraham lies, uh, you know, in that process. Sarah laughs at the prospect of that. Uh, Jacob, the patriarch, is deceitful with his brother. Moses argues with God. The Israelites complain uh, in the judges. Right? Welcome to the judges, right? I'm just all amount of weirdness. Gideon's disbelief. Samson's horrible uh, relationships. The three major kings, Saul and David and Solomon, all crash and burn in some way, right? The prophets, the prophets, what, what are all the prophets called to do? To go and confront the people, right? To go confront the people and their sin, that they would repent. Jesus shows up, the Son of God. What does he do? He goes and confronts the religious leaders and calls them to to true religion, to trust in Christ and a humble heart and all of that. We think about the early church and Paul with the Corinthians and the Galatians. We're reading these letters going, they had a lot of stuff wrong. And Paul confronts in Corinthians and he confronts in Galatians and he confronts in Romans and we get to Revelation, the final book of the Bible, and, the, and chapter 2 and chapter 3 are all about what? Confrontation, right? You know, you need to turn this and change this and all this. And, and you know what's consistent really from Genesis to Revelation? Our God is a confronting God. He's a confronting God. And, and what's the takeaway? God demonstrates that righteous confrontation is not incompatible with his love, but is actually an expression of it. Do you see that? Because I think a lot of people think, you know, God's loving, he would never judge me, he would never confront me, or, you know, I'm, I love people, I would never confront people, I would never get in their laundry, their dirty laundry and all that, when the opposite is true. God has demonstrated from Genesis to Revelation that he is a God of loving confrontation. 
and that that patient, gentle, sometimes stern, but nonetheless expression of his confrontation is actually the action of his love and his care for people. Just imagine, let's rewind the tape back, okay? Just imagine Genesis 3 happens and God says, well, if that's the way you want to live, fine. And he leaves. And praise God that he didn't do that. He confronts, he confronts, he confronts, he confronts. Because that confrontation, like we all jump in the pool, is a rescue operation, isn't it? It's an opportunity for repentance. So, so let's not get the idea that confrontation is antithetical to love. Done right, done well, biblical confrontation is one of the greatest expressions of love a human being can exemplify. And God himself models that. God loves us enough to confront us over our sin. And so we want to do the same. Well, speaking of John Newton, um, got to fit that in, right? I, I've, I've drunk the Kool-Aid of Newton for the last two years. It's like, you know, Spurgeon said, Spurgeon said of uh, John Bunyan, if you prick him, he bleeds bibline. Well, if you prick, prick me right now, I'm going to bleed John Newton on you. Um, so Newton's a pastor, right? And he, he shepherded many other pastors and, and whatnot. And, um, and he heard there was a pastor friend of his that was going to write a letter confronting a fellow pastor who had ended up in heresy and error. And so this other pastor is like, oh, I've got to write him. I've got to call him to repentance. You know, I'm going to do this. And, and uh, the pastor that was the heretic, it was a big deal. It was an actual kind of scandal. And, and so he needed to be confronted. But Newton thought, you know what? I want to help this pastor who's going to write the letter of confrontation. Let me read you what Newton wrote. As to your opponent, I wish that before you set pen to paper against him, and during the whole time you are preparing to answer, that you may commend him by earnest prayer to the Lord's teaching and blessing. This practice will have a direct tendency to conciliate your heart to love and pity him, and such a disposition will have a good influence on every page you write. If you account him a believer, though greatly mistaken in the subject of the debate between you, the words to David, of David to Joab concerning Absalom are very applicable. Deal gently with him for my sake, because the Lord loves him, and bears with him, and therefore you must not despise him or treat him harshly. The Lord bears with you likewise, and expects that you should show tenderness to others from a sense of the much forgiveness you need yourself. In a little while, you will meet him in heaven. He will then be dearer to you than the nearest friend you can have upon earth is to you now. Anticipate that period in your thoughts. And though you may find it necessary to oppose his errors, view him personally as a kindred soul with whom you are to be happy in Christ forever. But if you look upon him as an unconverted person in a state of enmity against God and his grace, a supposition of which without good evidence you should be very unwilling to admit, he is more proper an object of your compassion than of your anger. Alas, he, knew, he knows not what he does. But you know who has made you to differ. If God, in his sovereign pleasure, had so appointed, 
you might have been now, you might have been as he is now. And he, instead of you, might have been set for this defense of the gospel. You were both equally blind by nature. If you attend to this, you will not reproach or hate him, because the Lord has been pleased to open your eyes and not his. I'm afraid that there are Calvinists who, while they account it a proof of their humility, that they are willing in words to debase the creature and to give glory to God of salvation, yet know not what manner of spirit they are of. Whatever it be that makes us trust in ourselves that we are comparatively wise or good so as to treat others with contempt who do not subscribe to our doctrines or follow our party, it is a proof and a fruit of our self-righteous spirit. Self-righteousness can feed upon doctrines as well as works, and a man may have the heart of a Pharisee while his head is stored with orthodox notions of the unworthiness of the creature and the riches of free grace. This leads me then in the last place to consider your own concern in your present undertaking. It seems a laudable service to defend the faith once for all delivered to the saints, and we are commanded to contend earnestly for it and to convince gainsayers. If ever such defenses were seasonable and expedient, they appear to be so in our day when errors abound on all sides and every truth of the gospel is either directly denied or grossly misrepresented. And yet, we find but very few writers of controversy who have not been manifestly hurt by it. Either they grow in a sense of their own importance or imbibe an angry, contentious spirit or they insensibly withdraw their attention from those things which are the food and immediate support of the life of faith, and they spend their time and strength upon matters which are at most but of a secondary value. This shows that if the service is honorable, it is dangerous. What will it profit a man if he gains his cause and silences his adversary, if at the same time he loses that humble, tender frame of spirit in which the Lord delights? and to which the promise of his presence is made. May God give us that type of spirit when we confront. Father, thank you. Thank you for showing us in the scripture. Thank you for demonstrating it in examples in the Bible and examples in church history like Mr. Newton. That confrontation done well is not an expression of pride or arrogance, but is an expression of love, and that you yourself model that in your own redemptive confrontation of us in need of grace and mercy. Lord, might we confront as those who have received great mercy, and we might pray for those in need of repentance, and that we might exemplify the humility of someone who has been given such great grace as an undeserved gift of your kindness. Lord, this is hard for us. We're not good at this, and we need your help. And so we look for your assistance and pray for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.